Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Yeremiyahu Aaron Taub, a poet and writer in English and Yiddish and a Yiddish translator. He is the author of two books of fiction, Beloved Comrades, a novel in stories, and Prodigal Children in the House of God, stories and six volumes of poetry, including A Mouse Among Tottering Skyscrapers, Selected Yiddish Poems. Taub's most recent translation from the Yiddish is May God Avenge Their Blood, a Holocaust memoir triptych by Rockmail Bricks. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, really a great treat to be able to speak with you. Um, our paths have crossed for many years um, with your work at the center and in translation, so um, it's great and occasioned by what is an incredible work in translation. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and, and to start off with, let's just talk a little bit, actually, about how you came to Yiddish translation. So I've been translating um, for really quite a long time. I mean, arguably, um, since my childhood, when I actually worked with Hebrew. Um, and in my head, English was always the language I was comfortable with. But we used to have to write Hebrew compositions, and I would then write those in Hebrew and translate those into Hebrew. Um, Yiddish came later, um, although Yiddish had always been kind of in my mind, in my linguistic cosmos. It was a part of the ultra-Orthodox world in which I grew up. Um, it was one language among others, English, Hebrew, Aramaic for the Talmud, um, yeshivish, which is kind of like a mixture of all those things. And so Yiddish uh, came when I was at um, in graduate school at Emory in the 90s, and I realized that I wanted something. I was kind of studying German history at that point, and I wanted something that would take me back to my roots. And I went to YIVO and enrolled in a summer program and that kind of really changed the course of my adult life. Um, I immersed myself in Yiddish culture. It was kind of this electrifying moment, which I think a lot of people experience um, when they first study Yiddish. It just kind of, things click, things that had been maybe kind of dormant, maybe kind of, you know, roiling within their own um, worlds um, really comes to the fore. And Ever since then, you know, really for the past, gosh, more than a quarter century, um, I've been immersed um, in Yiddish and Yiddish culture. Um, when I was a student in the Zuma program, in the Yiddish summer program, which was then partnered with Columbia, I took a workshop, a translation workshop, with Professor Jeffrey Chandler. And um, it was just really a magical experience. And through him, we kind of, and with all the other students in the workshop, we kind of unpacked texts and, you know, uh, played with words and mulled over implications of word choices, um, you know, kind of translator's dream. And ever since then, I've been really interested in translation. I did a little bit over the years. Um, as freelancer, um, I translated articles for researchers who were working on particular book topics. Um, for example, um, David Markolik was writing about Louis Schmeling, um, 
and there were some articles in the Yiddish press. Um, I'm sorry, Max Schmeling. Um, and there were articles in the Yiddish press um, that he wanted me to translate. And so I did gigs, translation gigs over the years. Um, and then it was when my reading group here in Washington, D.C., um, discovered uh, Bluma Lempel and Ellen Cassidy asked me to join her on translating that Ellen and I embarked on that translation project. So I would say the BRICS project is my second major translation project, but I've been involved in and interested in translation for many years. Um, and, and the translation of Oedipus in Brooklyn is just um, astounding. <laughs> it's, it's a great work, so I, we thank you both, um, for which you both won um, our first translation prize um, for taking that work on. Um, let's talk about your most recent translation, um, the Rockmill Bricks memoir, um, and what about this work compelled you to take it on? So the thing I love, well, first I should say that I translated three works, hence the triptych in the title. Um, they were published in two volumes. Um, the first one, Diva Zaini Nishkebleben, came out in 1972 while Bricks was still alive. The second work, Dant Leufers and Pungesise zum Leben, The Fugitives and From Agony to Life was published in 1975 after Bricks had died and it was brought out by Bricks's wife, Hinda Bricks, Hinda Irene Bricks. And I was immediately drawn in by the language, by the fluidity. Um, The first book, um, Diva Sainanishkeblieben, Those Who Didn't Survive, um, is this beautiful portrait of the shtetl um, that Bricks was born and raised in called Skarzysk in Yiddish and Skarzysko Kamiena in Poland. And it's a stunning depiction of an annihilated Jewish community. Um, there are moments of lyricism. There are moments of great descriptive attention. Um, Bricks, you feel like he's it's so important for him to get down like every article of clothing, how it was worn, um, every nuance of how food was prepared, how food was eaten, all of the different folkways. And there's also dramatic anecdotes. So he's kind of moves in and out um, of these different styles. And the center of those who didn't survive is his maternal great uncle, Rebendel Feldman, who's kind of this larger than life mythical figure um, who straddled both the Jewish and Polish spheres. Um, he was very wealthy, um, very handsome, um, very kind. He gave a lot to charity. Um, he always danced with the poor in Simchas Torah during the Simchas Torah dance for the poor. Um, when poor people came to the large feasts, he always made sure they had what to eat. Um, so there's a lot of love in, you know, in the portrayal of Mendel Feldman, but there's also Briggs doesn't shy away from you know, the complexities of the character. So what initially seems like it's gonna be a hagiographic description kind of moves into sort of more complex areas. And that he's very adept at kind of always moving the narrative thread back to Rebendel. Um, so Rebendel is both, he's, he's kind of like a lens 
um, through which the shtetl is seen. And there's a whole array of wonderfully drawn characters um, from the very rich to the very poor and everyone in between. All the political stripes of all the different um, figures, um, Zionist, socialist, religious, secular, um, they're all here. They're all sort of lovingly um, presented. So that was the first book. And then um, I was in also drawn to the second two works that were published in that single volume, The Fugitives and From Agony to Life. Um, the Fugitives is really um, very dramatically paced. Um, so it's a very different narrative style, very different tempo. Um, than those who didn't survive. And it's about the early days of the war from September 1939 to May 1940 and all the intense sort of terrifying things that happened um, to BRICS and really Poland um, during that time period. And again, there's that attention to detail, which is such a trademark of Rachmiel BRICS' incredible writing. Um, there is these, you know, these moments where, you know, he'll talk about the Polish government gave us, you know, tampons dipped in bicarbonate soda to prevent us from poison gases. Um, he talks about the blue blotting paper that covered uh, light bulbs um, between, you know, during those early days of the war so that the lights wouldn't be seen by the Germans. Those are the kinds of things that bring um, the text really to life. He talks about um, the citizens of Ludge, which he was then living. He had moved to Ludge as a teenager. And so he talks really eloquently about people on the run, um, people bringing their possessions, trying to avoid um, the German bombs, um, trying to hide, knowing when to hide, knowing where to hide. Um, knowing when to run, knowing where to go to, you know, the air raid sirens. Um, and as a translator, I really also had to think about mastering, like, all these different vocabularies. Um, so that's the second book. And then the third book is um, about his experiences in various um, camps. I should say that in Dant Leifers, Bricks is ensnared in kind of the German in various German prison camp situations, even before he's interned in the Ludge ghetto in 1940. So even early on, um, he had been through like so much in terms of just what he survived. Like even before he's in the Ludge ghetto, Bricks has been through like horrific conditions. Um, and the third book um, focuses on Auschwitz and other, um, you know, more, I'm gonna say industrial scale um, concentration camps, prison camps, labor camps, various captivity situations. And even there, he's very focused on um, the complexities of human agency. So even the most beastly, sadistic um, overseer, you know, camp overseer, um, has moments of humanity that breaks finds and foregrounds. Um, for example, when a prisoner is found hanging from the ceiling, um, the overseer, you know, calls in the Jews to uh, perform some kind of service and the cantor sings 
and there are tears in the overseer's eyes when Bricks meets his eyes. So those are the kinds of moments that I really think make this all three works like incredibly rich, incredibly powerful, um, incredibly meaningful. And that's why, yeah, that's why I was drawn to them. I think that that kind of moral complexity is, is something that's so important. And then couple that with his literary gifts um, as a writer, his sense of style and tempo and rhythm, his insistence upon um, the people and the folk. Um, and he always called himself, you know, a writer for the people. He always insisted on writing in a kind of unadorned way. And those are the kinds of um, things that aren't necessarily easy to translate um, to kind of capture that that kind of seemingly simple yet really rich and really resonant writing style that I immediately fell in love with. Is that, um, you've touched on a lot of things that I wanted to ask you about because I too was struck. He, he chronicles his experience and yet I found that he leaves it and I love your take on this. For me, I felt as though he left it to the reader and I'm not sure this is the right word to use to sort of process the emotions, the struggles and the horrors that he depicts and he doesn't do it in this way that sort of hits you over the head. You are, I feel like I was inside his head to sort of both as observer and um, experientially and yeah, it's I'm, I'm having a hard time pinpointing what it was about it but he's not asking the reader for sympathy in a way he's really telling us a story an important story we need to know from his point of view and I also feel like he is telling it for the story as it represents the story of the others um so I can imagine that this was challenging to get into his head for his voice, because as you say, it's so, um, he, he's able um, to write this in, in, in this, what I found to be a really compelling way. Um, and I, uh, I'd love to know if you sort of feel the same way in terms of how he wanted, what he wanted the reader to take away. Yes, thank you so much. Um, it's really great to hear that reaction. Um, I felt similarly that um, there's a kind of understatedness despite the horror. Um, you know, I have to think more about this as I'm processing myself um, in response to your question. Um, there is a sense in which, I'm not gonna say matter of factness, but I, I think understatedness um, and a kind of, there's an avoidance of hyperbole um, throughout. I mean, you know, there's the term murderer and beast that are used, but much of the action is really described, especially in that third um, book of the triptych um, about the camps, um, about the, the later camps post Lodge Ghetto. Um, that really, I mean, the horror is so vast that it's almost like that um, journalistic kind of reportage um, insistence on the facts kind of allows the events to even reverberate more um, by not 
like loading it with opinion and hyperbole. Um, and one really has to marvel about um, Brix's kind of photographic memory. I mean, the things, you know, that he remembered are just kind of amazing um, throughout, just from everything that people wore and ate to what they were saying. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is how incredibly gifted he was at capturing conversations on the street. Um, he's re he really, really crafted some very snappy dialogue. Um, and dialogue is actually really hard to translate because um, you're always thinking about idiom and, you know, you don't want it to be too contemporary, but you also don't want the register to be too high. So, yeah, dialogues uh, are particularly challenging, which is one of the reasons why translating plays is so hard. Um, but I thought Bricks is a master, really, at um, capturing dialogue, um, people on the train, people on the road, people on the highway, um, heated political discussions in the shtetl. Um, all of those things um, are sort of masterfully captured with very little... Um, you know, omniscient narrator or commentary. Um, there's some, there is some, um, and there's moments, but in general, you feel like he's really letting the characters breathe. He's letting the events flow. He's letting the descriptions flow. Um, and I think that really allows the reader uh, greater access and greater entree um, into the reading experience. And I also want to say, just I didn't mention this earlier, but one thing that was really important to me was to have these three books presented together, even though Those Who Didn't Survive was published years before, or you know, three years before um, the other two. And that was because I wanted the reader in a single reading experience to experience not just the horrors of the Holocaust, but also the beauty of Jewish life that was lost, that was decimated, that was wiped out. And um, I think so many readers don't necessarily, like often in Holocaust memoirs, the pre-Holocaust material is just quickly glossed over. And I really wanted it to be foregrounded, even though it's one of the shorter books um, in the triptych it's so rich and so resonant and so meaningful that I think when readers experience the three together, um, it will really make for um, a powerful reading experience. At least that was my hope. Um, well, you, you achieved it for this reader because I was really taken by it because, you know, how sometimes, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but you go to a you know, a classical work of music and they do a prelude, it really did set you up. It, it takes you from the world that was his world into where he had, you know, where he was taken. I, I, I felt it was really great. And, and I kept reflecting back on it as he's on his journey. I mean, there was one, um, there was one uh, passage where, you know, he says, in my stubborn determination to find ways of staying alive, I remembered that we had close relatives in Krakow, and, the, and he procures a piece of paper and a pencil to write. And his way, his way of having the resolve to continue is uh, to reconnect with that world and to find strength in that um, as, a, as a thread. So, yeah, it, it's 
it's really it's really an amazing as an amazing and important work and as you say the other thing is his the reportage i mean that's how i felt reading it as well he's just he's great at that and yet his ability which i know he was recognized um early on as a poet um that that comes through his choice as you say of words his descriptions i just there's so many ways to unpack this work so before i go any further let me ask you to um maybe read uh a particular passage or um, part of a chapter or something that resonated with you and when you were working on it and would probably illustrate for our listeners a lot of what you've been talking about great thank you so this passage is kind of part of the end of sabbath description in those who didn't survive and it goes like this. After Romendel completed the blessing over the washing of the hands with great concentration, he made the blessing for bread on a large challah. Everyone responded with amen. He cut into the challah with a Sabbath knife, broke off a small portion, dipped it into salt, ate it, and then cut the challah to go with the herring. And then the Sabbath hymns began. Each singer had a claim on a particular hymn and always sang it with the same melody. Everyone joined in the song. Remendel called out a particular hymn to the designated singer. In other words, he was the one who dispensed the honors. By then, it was twilight, and as evening darkened into night, the joy in the singing deepened. I lay under the table near my father's feet, and sang along with every song. My young, clear voice resounded over those of the mature, partially hoarse voices of the men. After all of the Sabbath hymns had been sung, Remendel sent Yussel into the courtyard, saying, Yussel, go and see if three stars are out. Yussel went out and then returned quickly, exclaiming, Yes, I counted three stars. Remendel responded, Yassel, sing Shiramalas, the song of the ascents, but to an upbeat tone, tune. Yassel propped up his left cheek in the palm of his left hand and sang to the tomb of Chaim Nachman Bialik's melody. Everyone joined in, and the silver cup with the water for the washing after meals was passed from person to person, and the fingertips were moistened in rhythm and to the beat of the melody. By the time the song ended, everyone had washed for grace after meals, and Remendel had filled the great silver goblet with wine. Sitting on Remendel's right, Remordchala then lifted up the goblet and served it to him. Remendel accepted the goblet with his right hand, with three fingers under the base, and with his thumb and index fingers, he lifted the goblet, and eyes closed sang out loud in a sweet, soulful voice, Friends, let's recite the grace after meals. And everyone responded, Let his name be blessed now and forever. And like undulating waves, the collective song of the grace after meals washed over the room. When the grace ended, the Sabbath goy turned on the electricity. At that time, Remendel had his own electricity from a small generator powered by collected steam in his factory. And the light came on, and everyone shouted out, Have a good week, in unison. 
One man who held the claim commenced the weekday evening service in a weekday melody. A melancholy descended over the room. The Sabbath was gone. The evening service was rattled off quickly. To hear the Havdalah prayer marking the Sabbath's end, Bashele, Remendel's wife, all of their daughters and female guests, such as aunts, wives, girls, and maidservants, congregated in one of the doorways. Remendel swept aside the tablecloth from one corner of the table, poured a small silver goblet with 96 proof spirits. Moishele, Remordchala's son, and Remendel's grandson held a lit Havdalah candle, braided with wax of seven different colors. He climbed on a chair and held the candle as high as he could hold it, a good omen for marrying a tall bride. Uncle Mendel gazed upon the boy's adorable, charming little face, his wide black shining eyes and long curled side locks and smiled with pride. He recited the Havdalah prayer with his own original heartfelt melody. When he reached the blessing on the spices, he put aside the goblet, took the antique silver spice case, shook up the spices inside, opened the little door, made the blessing, inserted his nose inside, and inhaled. Reb Mordchala and several prominent attendees did the same. Reb Mendel put his hands together so that his nails reflected in the light of the flame and recited the blessing on the creator of the lights of fire. All of the others did the same. Then he took the goblet back in his hands, continued the prayer, and a loud voice called out, Hamavdil ben Kodesh l'chol. He took a sip, poured the wine into a small plate. He took the Abdullah candle from Moishala, ignited the wine, extinguished the light, saying, Hamavdil ben Kodesh l'chol grabbed the fire on the small plate with his fingers and stuffed his trouser pockets. Several others did the same, as this was a good omen, signifying pockets full of money. Remendel folded his Sabbath prayer shawl as he sang the Yitain Lacha. Everyone exchanged greetings, have a good week, a week of good tidings, a week of health and livelihood. Remendel sang his Saturday night melody quietly, with feeling while smoking a cigar. The guests trudged home, returning to the realm of the everyday, dragging the yoke of earning a livelihood with them, but with full trust in God. He who lived forever wouldn't abandon his children, but would give them nourishment, just as he nourished all of his creatures. Thank you. That um, that was a passage I remember reading and was quite, um, yeah, taken by it. Um, and I think it's a great illustration of both his writing and uh, sort of what what the reader is enveloped in and takes away from it. Um, uh, quickly, um, I just wanted to ask you, maybe it's, is there one more section that's that's shorter, just a small passage, which also illustrates um, in some way his ability to write about others. Yes, and I'd like to read this passage about a character called Black Shia. The happiest man in town was Black Shia. 
His exuberance was infectious. Black Shia hailed from Ostrovice. He had four sons, two from his first wife, two from his second. These latter two went to my school. He was called Black Shia because he was dark-skinned, had a pitch-black beard, burning black eyes, and a head of black hair with a bald spot. His black beard was trimmed and well-groomed. He wore a stiff white collar with a wide black necktie, an elegant wool Hasidic coat, and a Jewish hat. Throughout the year, Black Shia worked as an employee in a commercial firm in Warsaw. He was only home from the high holidays until Sukkot. Every year, he brought back a new Mojitzer march, which he sang at Mendel's prayer house. Soon, the prayer house was singing along, and it wasn't long before it became a hit with the whole shtetl. The following year, he would bring home a new melody, and the one from the previous year became known as the old melody. So it went year after year. Black Shia led the morning prayers with a sweetness of tone, sweet singing the new march from the lectern. He was a lyric tenor who sang with great depth of feeling, especially on Simchat Torah, the entire shtetl sang his new melody with passion and fervor. At the table, Black Shia sat next to Reb Mendel. He began his melody in a loud voice, and everyone backed him up and clapped along in rhythm. He pulled the tablecloth to the side, leapt onto the table, and danced all over the entire surface. The men and boys sang his new melody with mounting liveliness and joy, clapped their hands, and tapped their feet as Black Shia danced ecstatically. Suddenly, he stuck two fingers into his mouth and started whistling the melody. Then he just whistled randomly. People, the Baal Shem Tov, may his righteous name be for a blessing, commanded us to be happy. Sight, sadness is idolatry. People, be happy. Come on, let me hear you. Let loose. So the people sang with even greater intensity. And then he asked loudly, what are we? Jews, everyone responded in unison. To whom did God give the Torah? Us Jews. Who accepted the Torah? We Jews. Suddenly he jumped down from the table and called out, Akazatske. People cleared a spot for him, and he started to dance the popular Jewish dance of Cossack origin. Everyone sang and clapped fervently along with him. Then they formed a circle and danced to the tune of the new march, while Black Shia cried out, People, livelier, let yourselves go. And people did, in fact, dance in abandon for a long time until at last Black Shia called out, have a good holiday, friends, next year in Jerusalem. To which everyone replied, have a good holiday, have a good holiday, next year in Jerusalem. Then breaded goose and stuffed cabbage were brought in. After the food was washed down with beer, Black Shia began his new melody again. He took Remendel by the hand and created a circle, and soon everyone was singing and dancing animatedly. Happy are we, Israel. Happy are we, Israel. And so, too, sang the Hasidim. Throughout the entire year, I danced a circle dance at home with a Pentateuch to Black Shia's melody and the style of his singing and dancing. Yahu, thank you so much for this. I know that this work um, came about as part of your uh, Yiddish Book Center Translation Fellowship. I see why you brought it to um, the fellowship in terms of its being a really important work um, and one that you've done 
such a great job uh, translating. So um, much appreciation. And for our readers, again, it's May God Avenge Their Blood, a Holocaust memoir triptych by Rockmill Bricks. Um, and it is available uh, through the Yiddish Book Center's bookstore online, shop.yiddishbookcenter.org. So thank you so much for taking time to join today, and I hope you're at work on your next project, yes? I am, and I really want to give a huge shout-out to Bella Bricks-Klein, the author's daughter. Um, it was through Bella that I first discovered Rachmiel Bricks's work. I saw an ad for an announcement uh, for a talk that she was giving at the Shlomo Center in the Bronx in 2017. And I then asked my friend Cecile Kuznets, the historian, um, who knew Bella, and Cecile put me in touch with Bella, and the rest is history. And Bella has really been um, a tireless advocate for her father's work throughout the years. There's an interview with her um, as part of the Yiddish Book Center's Wexler Oral History Project. And uh, Bella's really been such a champion, such a supporter of this work. So I really wanted to get that shout out in. Um, I'm just so grateful to her. Um, and I, of course, I want to thank the Yiddish Book Center for just an incredible, incredible amount of support. Um, it's an amazing, amazing program. And um, it was just a joy to experience the other translators, their projects, to get the critical feedback. Um, the instructors, my mentor, Liz Harris, was amazing. Um, all the instructors were great. Um, Bill Johnson, Karen Emmerich, um, Ellen, Elias Bersach. Um, was amazing. Um, I took a trip to Poland in 2018 um, to really immerse myself um, in Bricks and his work. And um, there's so many people to thank um, on that trip. Um, I went with a friend, the filmmaker Pearl Gluck. Um, I also met uh, Gabi von Seltman, Uwe von Seltman. In fact, Uwe was finishing his biography of Gebirtig. And I showed him the chapter where Bricks goes to meet Gebirtig in Krakow um, after he's released uh, from a camp um, near Krakow and in the Antlifers in The Fugitives. And Uwe had had no idea about this. And he needed an ending for his bio on Gebirtig. And he was just so delighted. So there were so many ways um, in which this project has been so magical. And I just feel so blessed to have worked on it. And um, at least I'm so happy uh, that I've had the opportunity to talk about this work with you. Um, I am working on a new translation project, and that is the novel Dina by the poet and writer Ida Maza. So hopefully we can talk about that at some point as well. So thank you again so much for this opportunity, and um, really appreciate it, and thanks for all you do. Uh, well, um, thank you, and for all of your colleagues as well. Um, I know that it's so exciting to see how much of all of this work and various aspects of it um, sort of, again, threads together and really enhances everything that you all bring to um, both publication and, as you mentioned, the oral histories, et cetera. They all inform in so many really rich rich and important ways. So we look forward to your next work. Thanks again for taking time, and um, we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit yiddishbookcenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well 
be healthy, and tune in again soon. Bye.